This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, Parliament heard heated arguments for and against a proposed law change that could standardise pay and conditions for workers across entire industries. But the temperature on that's already been raised by a campaign against the change. We look at how that's been reported and how a self-styled bad boy of Brexit who promised to make mayhem and mischief in politics here lost a long-running libel case against a reporter this week. Now, media freedom advocates are hailing that as a win for media freedom worldwide, but is it? But before all that, just a minor reshuffle, the Prime Minister said on Monday, irritating political reporters who accused the Prime Minister of deliberately downplaying it. The Prime Minister's office billed it as a minor reshuffle. Instead, Jacinda Ardern threw the pack in the air. The resignation of Immigration, Justice and Broadcasting Minister Chris Farfoy. The end of Speaker Trevor Mallard's 35-year parliamentary career. The axing of Porto Williams as Police Minister to be replaced by Chris Hipkins. That was News Hub at 6 last Monday night on TV Channel 3, channelling its own reporter's irritation about a cabinet reshuffle, trailed by the Prime Minister's people that morning as no big deal. But political reporters, always on a hair trigger for even the hint of a possible ministerial scalp, were not persuaded by that. Now, in the end, it was just one minister who was on the way out altogether and of his own free will, but several others had themselves and their portfolios moved around, and in some cases, down. On her show the next day, Today FM's Tova O'Brien seemed positively offended by the Prime Minister seeking to spin significant switches as just a minor matter. Impeccably polished was Jacinda Ardern as she wielded her bloody axe in her velvet-gloved hand announcing her minor reshuffle. Impeccably polished until she was asked by our political editor, Newsroom's Joe Moyer, if it was dishonest for her office to have described the reshuffle as minor. The unflappable became quite flapped as she realised her usual managing of expectations had transcended into farcical fibbery. Tova O'Brien reckoned that this sort of spin was a reason that people had lost trust in politics. Though the question of whether the media might play a part in that by overhyping such stuff, with florid language about scalping, sword-wielding and making assumptions about politicians' self-serving intent, didn't get an airing. So how did the Prime Minister actually respond when asked why she minimised Monday's ministerial reshuffle? I think probably if I'd come out and said it was major, you'd then say it's only two people, why did you call it major? Um, I think it's probably possible to get slightly too hung up on the language. Uh, there's no, it's no easy way to describe this. There's one person leaving Cabinet, so do I consider that to be major? No. Some people who have an interest in these portfolios may, though, so I guess it's open for interpretation. And there was certainly plenty of interpretation about that among the commentators. Tova O'Brien went on to say that all this matters because it's those portfolios that really matter to us in the real world. Policies matter. Who and how they are implemented and communicated matters. I'm talking about police, ram-raided retailers, split migrant families, gang victims, offshore nurses, onshore hospitals, the health front line, midwives, pregnant women, the list goes on. And so did Tova O'Brien and her fellow Today FM host Lloyd Burr, though he appeared to contradict his former News Hub Press Gallery colleagues' claim that real issues behind the reshuffle were what mattered. When he pondered the apparent demotion of Police Minister Porter Williams, Lloyd Burr concluded that perception, or what they call optics, matters more. Now behind the scenes, she might have been working, but if that was the case, she failed time and time again to reassure the public of that. In the end, the optics made it look like she was incompetent and soft on crime, probably thanks to the huge deluge of attacks from the opposition. 
And when senior Herald political reporter Thomas Coughlin was asked on Wednesday if the new police minister, Chris Hipkins, would make a difference, his measure for that seemed to be whether he could please voters in the next general election. I mean, ultimately, it's going to be pretty hard, one would think, to smash the gangs um, before the election. He came out this morning and, and, and criticised National for, for rhetoric, sort of empty rhetoric around, around gangs, but he needs some way of measuring his success between now and the election. And when it comes to measuring success in the police portfolio, the pundits and political reporters will probably do it for him at election time, maybe even with a mark out of 10. But when that time comes, they'll probably talk about optics then as well and not about progress on crime beyond the horizon of one election or whatever the opposition policies happen to be at the time. Meanwhile, on Tuesday, Stuff Climate Change editor Eloise Gibson took to Twitter to lament the media narrative that the conservation portfolio switched to Potter Williams was one that underachieving ministers get demoted to. Who really needs the natural world, she asked, with tongue-in-cheek, prompting her staff colleague Charlie Mitchell to point out many people devote their lives to it and much of the tourist trade depends upon it. But at the political level, the conservation ministry is where you go to survive a bad news cycle. Now all that seemed to chime with what the Prime Minister said when she was seeking to downplay this reshuffle to sceptical reporters that it would only be a big deal to some people with an interest in the specific portfolios affected. And media certainly did have a specific interest in one of the portfolios shared by Chris Farfoy so he could spend more time with his family, the job of broadcasting and media minister. After he took that over in 2018, the Labour Party's policy pivoted from funding RNZ for more multimedia public media output to creating a brand new not-for-profit public media entity to replace RNZ and state-owned TVNZ next year. And in budget 2022 last month, the government committed more than $300 million over the next three years to part fund that. Last Monday, the Prime Minister praised the former TVNZ political reporter's part in the biggest policy change in public broadcasting for 30 years, like this. He's done a huge amount of work in the public broadcasting space at a time when we have wanted uh, to see greater investment uh, in public broadcasting. Uh, That agenda continues. Uh, that, That agenda has already been set. On Chris Farfoy's watch, the government also began part-funding journalism for a range of commercial media companies as well, via New Zealand On Air and the controversial Public Interest Journalism Fund. So all that's quite a bit of change set in train by a man who was made the Minister of Broadcasting less than 10 years after he finished up as a political reporter at Parliament for TVNZ. And Chris Farfoy told the current parliamentary press pack last Monday... Look, I think the privilege of sitting around the cabinet table was something that I never imagined I'd ever do when I walked into this place um, with a microphone and a camera. But when asked why he was now walking away from all of that, Chris Farfoy said this... You, you, you want to see things through, but you also, if you have a line in the sand that's a date, then that's just the reality of it. On Monday, the Prime Minister also revealed that Chris Farfoy had in fact drawn that line earlier. He planned to step away before the last election, which was before Cabinet had confirmed the new public media entity plan. But not buying that was News Talk ZB's Wellington Morning host Nick Mills, who told his listeners Chris Farfoy should have gone sooner. I say, yeah, right. And I say, he should have gone when he wanted to go, because he made a lot of us miserable by staying. But quite how a minister mostly described as well-liked made Nick Mills and others miserable, Nick Mills didn't say. But while the Prime Minister insisted that one of Chris Farfoy's key attributes was an ability to build relationships with anybody and everybody, she's replaced him as broadcasting minister with another former broadcaster who has tested relationships within the media over the years and at times harshly criticised peers and rivals. 
Before he went on Labour's list, Willie Jackson was a Māori media leader who pressed hard for more Māori news issues and people in mainstream media, and it was a familiar refrain of his over the years that Māori media were always left with the crumbs. But since the 2020 election, Willie Jackson's been the Minister of Māori Development, overseeing the funding of Māori media, and back in March he told Radio Wātea he would resign if the new public media entity replacing RNZ and TVNZ didn't also benefit Māori. We want to see our people hear our people in mainstream, uh, and that shouldn't take anything away from what we do in terms of a Māori sense, in terms of Māori TV and Māori radio. This is going to be an and-and, not a public media and see you later Māori broadcasting. I, I'd resign if it, that was the case. And late last month, Willie Jackson said this when he was asked about all that on Māori current affairs show The Hui. I've worked with Chris Farfoy in terms of the wider broadcasting story in Kaupapa. But my job in the last couple of years is to get money. I've got $80 million in over the last two years. That works out to about 15... I know people are still moaning, but it's still 15 20% of the overall budget. You'll know what the, the public media budget is. That's a good start, yep. and I think we've got the frameworks in place. Well, that was three weeks ago, and now Willie Jackson's taken over Chris Farfoy's role as Broadcasting Minister, as well as Minister of Māori Development. And that puts him in charge of the strategies for public media and Māori media, which in the past have overlapped, but essentially developed quite separately. Well, this week we wanted to ask Willie Jackson how he plans to manage all of that, but he was unavailable for interview. Though last Thursday he did have time for his weekly kōrero on Radio Wātea. Morena, bro. Morena. Good on you. Uh, I'm still... I'm, I'm a bit tired, big night last night, but uh, I'm still the Māori Development Minister too, Dale. It's, uh, it's, a more mahi, it's a more mahi to do and a, a really good opportunity. Well, that big night was Nā Tohu o Matariki o Te Tau, the sixth annual Matariki Awards hosted by Fakata Māori, Māori Television. But in that chat, Willie Jackson said he won't be giving any details to the media till next week, though he did tell Wātea host Dale Husband a bit about how he saw the opportunity. Obviously, it's a big opportunity for Māori, but it's a big opportunity for, for, for the whole country, really, in terms of getting a model uh, that suits uh, the country, suits and a lot of Kiwis who have been sidelined by the broadcasting model. You know, his stories aren't being told. So we do hope to hear from the new Minister of Broadcasting next week here on Media Watch, when we'll also look at his own colourful career in the media so far, which may mean a few bridges need to be built now that he's got the government's two big broadcasting responsibilities. were told if they donated under 15k it didn't need to be legally declared and their names wouldn't be made public. There is no way we would want our names disclosed and it flashed all around the newspapers that we paid money to a political party because once you do in this country you get crucified. That was part of a report by TVNZ's Katie Bradford on One News from the Auckland High Court last Monday at the start of week two of a fraud trial expected to last six weeks. The serious fraud office has charged two men with obtaining by deception about three quarters of a million dollars that was paid into bank accounts associated with the New Zealand First Party, but not properly declared to the Electoral Commission. Now, the media have tried several times to get permission to name these two individuals who've been charged, but without success so far. And as TVNZ's Katie Bradford said in her report, the 40-odd New Zealand First donors weren't keen to have their backing of the party made public either. 
But those names have been coming out in court. Newsroom's co-editor Tim Murphy this week described them as a small group of wealthy business people who banded together to fund New Zealand first before the 2017 election to make Winston Peters kingmaker and achieve a change of government. But back in mid-2020, two rich people who are famous for paying out substantial sums to influence politics overseas were only too happy to let it be known that they backed New Zealand first and its leader. The self-styled bad boys of Brexit, Aaron Banks and Andy Wigmore, bankrolled a big-money campaign to persuade Britons to vote to leave the European Union back in 2016. Indeed, so much money was put into the campaign that it was fined for overspending by the UK's Electoral Commission, but only after they got the Brexit result that they really wanted. And in July 2020, the pair told a British newspaper they were sending a team to New Zealand to help New Zealand first in the upcoming election with what they called mischief, mayhem and political guerrilla warfare. The pair then denied they were sending anyone to New Zealand in a weird interview with News Hub's Europe correspondent at the time, Lloyd Burr, in which they also told him this. There's a contract between us uh, that's uh, no doubt with the Electoral Commission or whatever, or, or Gus body will be released in due course. As you all know, because of past um, issues... I think they issued, had, a, they, they issued a statement saying that there wasn't a crack team of six people flying <laughs> to New Zealand, because there wasn't. Well, after that, Aaron Banks has promised to deliver Winston on steroids, and at least 13% of the popular vote for New Zealand First came to nothing in 2020. And Aaron Banks was back in the headlines this week in the UK when he lost a libel court case that some have hailed as a major win for press freedom. Back in 2019, investigative reporter Carol Cadwallader, a key figure in exposing the scandal of Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, said this about Aaron Banks in a TED Talk. And I'm not even going to go into the lies that Aaron Banks has told about his covert relationship with the Russian government. Carol Cadwallader's TED Talk was based on years of reporting she'd done for UK papers The Guardian and The Observer, but Aaron Banks, who insisted he had no such ties to Russia, sued her for libel personally. But this week, Channel 4 in the UK reported this result. Today, the judge found, although the comments were damaging to Banks, that Carol Cadwallader had acted in the public interest when she made the statement. Because at the time, Mr Banks was being investigated by the National Crime Agency and the Electoral Commission. But later, both cases against him were dropped. And there was an unexpected Kiwi link to this when New Zealand freelance journalist Tom Much, a familiar face and voice recently for his reporting on the ground from the war in Ukraine, revealed that he was a part of the story. He said that he was a researcher working with a biographer of Banks, who was mentioned in the judgment as a key figure in unearthing emails that showed Banks did have dealings with people in Russia. The judgment said that Carol Cadwallader had established that it was reasonable for her to believe that publication of the allegations against Banks were in the public interest, but Carol Cadwallader's TED Talk claims had caused serious harms to Banks's reputation, the judgment also made plain. So while press freedom advocates have said that Aaron Banks' failed libel cases are a big win for public interest journalism, is it? I asked Peter Gagan, director and chief editor of the UK's Open Democracy Foundation, which has also investigated foreign financing of politics in Britain. People with power, money and influence have been able to take journalists, investigative journalists to court, um, causing huge, huge harm for them in many respects. But and what's really significant in this is Mrs Justice Stein finds that the public interest was in Carol Cadwallader's favour, that it was in the public's interest for Carol Cadwallader to report what she believed at the time were the facts about 
Aaron Banks and his links to, to Russia. So it's a really significant moment, I think, for uh, journalists, for people like myself, investigative reporters and others who have long argued that this public interest test should be able to defend us a lot more than it currently does. So it, it, I think it is a really significant ruling. I heard Carol Cadwallader on the BBC's media show this week and she talked about how this dominated her life and effectively that if she had lost, it would have, you know, ruined her. I mean, in the end, she said something she couldn't really back up. So can we really call it a win for media freedom in this instance? It is important to kind of put down in, in law the idea that there's a public interest in investigative reporting, in speaking truth to power. I think that's really, really important. There's another way in which you can see this is not being a, a victory for media freedom and not just in, 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 in having a threat of defamation hanging over you. As I know myself, I've never actually been sued in a court, but I've had many threats hanging over me. It's a very stressful and uh, anxiety-ridden experience. It's not necessarily who said what and what the outworkings of that are. It's a bigger question. Well, why does this have to end up in a high court? Why does it have to cost millions of pounds for this to happen? There's an opportunity for people to say, okay, look, this has happened. How do we come to, you know, what's reasonable? What's what's uh, an equitable kind of endpoint to this? But instead, we end up with these huge, huge legal battles which take place in courtrooms and, and are incredibly costly for everyone, both the plaintiffs and the defence. Well, the National Union of Journalists in the UK raised concern in relation to this case about so-called slap cases or uh, strategic lawsuits against public participation, effectively legal action that's taken against journalists or possibly whistleblowers to silence them effectively. Um, Although the judge in this case said it wasn't actually fair or apt to describe it as such a case. This is one big high-profile case, but it's not the only case that's been going through the courts in in relation to defamation law in the UK at all. We regularly receive... um, legal threats, often from you know international oligarchs, people who use the city of London to launder and wash money, et cetera, et cetera. And this is rarely about an actual courtroom uh, battle. What you saw with Aaron Banks and Carol Cadwallader, or even with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard in the British courts, is quite unusual. We rarely see defamation cases ending up actually in court. What happens is they drag on the background for years and years. They take up huge amounts of journalistic time and resources, and that is the point of them. And they have a chilling effect on reporting. Carol Cadwallader on the BBC's media show was quite upset, uh, really, about the lack of coverage of this outcome. She said some days there were just no mainstream media court reporters there at all. Why would that be? Because there's huge public interest in, you know, the funding of political campaigns, particularly around Brexit and all the things that have come out since that vote. Reporters and news editors were like, well, Aaron Banks is trying to sue Carol Cadwallader. Let's let's even though you you know obviously you, you're perfectly entitled to report on court cases, but let's not get too involved with this. Let's kind of take a step back. Let's let's not have any potential damage for us in this. And you know, and you can never, in some ways, underestimate the the the, the kind of concerns of of, of editors on, on senior titles for for that. For Carol, there was there's definitely been um, she has been I think unfairly maligned for aspects of her reporting. And I think that kind of shone through in some of the lack of solidarity we saw. And I hope that this is going to change now in the back of this judgment and that this might be a kind of watershed moment where, you know, journalists understand and see that there's a huge value in reporting on these cases and showing solidarity with one another. Well, I guess it remains to be seen if this case, um, Banks versus Cadwallader, it ends up being a kind of legal uh, precedent or part of case law. But fascinating level of detail in the judgment. The judge clearly did a lot of her own research to find out what had gone on in the background 
uh, to fully understand the claims. And interesting, for example, it mentions uh, Peter Dukes, um, who's a journalist with an outfit called Byline Times, so another online, non-mainstream media investigative um, outlet. Maybe some of the heavy lifting in cases like this is being done by independently-minded journalists like Carol Cadwallader and independent online outlets like yours and um, Byline Times. So maybe the mainstream media is kind of left behind cases like this? I think that's very much part of it. I think a lot of mainstream media outlets just haven't seen the value in this and haven't seen how important it is from a public interest position that these, these stories get covered. That was Peter Gagan, director and chief editor of the UK's Open Democracy Foundation, which has investigated foreign financing of politics in the UK, talking to me there about a win in court in the UK for journalist Carol Cadwallader, who was sued for libel by a self-described bad boy of Brexit, Aaron Banks, who also made big noises about getting involved in politics here back in 2020. Well, as we heard earlier, TVNZ's Katie Bradford was on the case in the Auckland High Court this week, reporting on that fraud trial concerning undeclared donations to the New Zealand First Party. But this week, she was also reporting another hot political story, the government's proposed Fair Pay Agreements Law, which would allow for minimum pay and conditions across entire industries and potentially the entire country, if workers want that. Parliament's Education and Workforce Select Committee heard unions want to back the change this week, but employers' representatives don't, as Katie Bradford pointed out on One News last Monday. A chorus of employers lined up to tell MPs no way to FPAs. With staff shortages and a slow recovery from the pandemic, employers say now's not the time. Hotel managers say they've lost over 50% of their workforce. And people cannot be hired to clean rooms in Queenstown at the moment. Also looking at that this week was the political editor of the NBR, Brent Edwards, who's also a long-time member of the main journalist union, E2, and he said that the hearings this week showed that workers and employers have completely different notions of the labour market these days. One is a very benign labour market where everyone gets paid well and treated well, and the other is a rather brutish and ugly labour market where people are paid poorly and treated badly. And, of course, if you're an employer... You're saying everything's hunky-dory, you don't need this legislation, and workers are saying, no, things aren't great for us, and we need fair pay agreements to lift our wages and and give them uh, better working conditions. But it's not just in Parliament that arguments for and against fair pay agreements have been mounted, and one lobby group's even gone offshore to get a major international organisation to get the proposed reforms declared illegitimate. And as Hayden Tunnell now reports, how that's been reported in the media so far has seriously muddied the waters. On the 16th of May, the New Zealand Herald carried a headline that read like bad news for the government and those supporting its fair pay agreements legislation. Proposal to change fair pay agreements condemned by UN Agency and Business New Zealand. The story went on to say that the UN's International Labour Organisation, or ILO, had placed New Zealand on a list of worst-case breaches of international labour treaties. It said we had been listed alongside Afghanistan and Venezuela and just ahead of Nigeria. Sounds kind of bad, but there were a few problems with this report. For starters, New Zealand hadn't been condemned by the ILO, neither had it been placed on a list of the worst cases of breaches of international labour treaties, and the only reason it had appeared just ahead of Nigeria was that the list the UN had put out was ordered alphabetically. 
It turned out the Herald had based its story on information provided by Business NZ, and that information had been, at best, misleading. The headline on the actual list put out by the UN agency didn't mention worse cases or international labour treaties at all. Its entry on fair pay agreements came under the comparatively impenetrable title Preliminary List of Cases as Submitted by the Social Partners Committee on the Application of Standards or, in plainer English, Stuff We Are Going to Consider in Future. And the information it sent out to the media business NZ had changed that wording and replaced it with the Worst Cases title while implying the ILO had already condemned fair pay agreements. Its chief executive, Kirk Hope, described the list as a naughty 40 for labour relations, asserting that the bill is in breach of ILO Convention 98, which forbids an act of interference between workers and employers. At that time, the Herald's business editor, Duncan Bridgman, told MediaWatch they accepted the information in good faith from Business NZ, though he said they could have looked closer at the detail of the source report. When called out on its mischaracterisation by Stuff, Business NZ's Employment Relations Policy Manager Paul Mackay admitted its headline was altered, but said, It doesn't have to be a past tense breach, an intention to breach is just as bad. That's, at best, debatable. But this week, the ILO returned its judgment on the proposed legislation. Instead of finding that potential breach of an international labour treaty, it waved the legislation through, urging the government to continue to examine it in consultation with unions and employer groups while ensuring it complies with international labour treaties. Even that decision has been spun as a victory by Business NZ, which has issued a press release claiming the instruction to ensure compliance is an indication that the bill doesn't currently comply. A source with inside knowledge of the ILO told MediaWatch that's not true. There's nothing in the decision to say the current legislation breaches any treaties. Last month, it kicked off a campaign called Your Work, Your Way, which calls on Kiwis to reject fair pay agreements. Its YouTube channel has several explainer videos pointing to problems with the proposal and game show-style questions for people in the streets, like this one. Let's jump into a first question. Who do you think is going to be impacted the most by the fair pay agreements? Is it A, the mature working age student? Is it B, parents juggling work and kids? Is it C, the small business owner? Or D, all of the above? From the facts that I have to say, it is all of the above. And you're bang on the money. Well played. Business NZ has also been running online and radio advertising with slogans including this. Fair pay agreements are like socks for Christmas. Nobody wants them. Hey, sometimes socks are a pretty good present. Some workers might even see a potential pay rise as a better one. Besides its claims about the ILO, it has contended that under the legislation, if 10% of workers want a fair pay agreement, 100% of workers have to get one. They won't. Any agreement has to be ratified by a majority of workers in that industry. This week, MediaWatch asked Business NZ, does it regret altering the ILO's words to say New Zealand had landed on a list of worst-case breaches of international labour treaties and a naughty 40 list after the ILO agreed to consider Business NZ's case? And does Business NZ stand by its recent statement that the Fair Pay Agreements Bill in its current form is not compliant with ILO Convention 98? Are there any regrets about the way Business NZ has run its campaign against the FPA legislation and are there plans to adjust the way that campaign is run? They haven't responded so far. Rebecca McPhee is an experienced labour reporter who's covered fair pay agreements for The Listener and Newsroom. I have been surprised by how this has rolled over the last 
you know, week to 10 days. The campaign that was run in 2000 when the then Labor government, the Helen Clark government, was introducing the Employment Relations Bill, uh, which is the legislation that now prevails, and was repealing at the same time the Employment Contracts Act, which was the very radical deregulation of the labour market that had occurred a decade before. I mean, it was nuts back at the time, and it was stuff was just made up by various business interests that didn't want to lose the Employment Contracts Act. I thought that it was fairly likely that the Fair Pay Agreements Bill would provoke, you know, some pretty hardcore campaigning. It's, you know, weirdly, I'm still, I'm still surprised to actually kind of see it in the flesh, I suppose. Everyone expected Business NZ to have philosophical differences on this legislation to oppose it. Do you think, though, that they have crossed a line in the stuff that they've said about the ILO? I do think they've glanced over the line from kind of hard lobbying to really, I think, it's inaccurate what they've presented, particularly in the two um, media statements they've made this week, you know, because they've explicitly said that the ILO committee, the Committee on the Application of Standards, said things that it in fact, did not say. And they've said that they got everything they went there for when you know, they very provably from the documents did not get what they went there for. They've reported on what the ILO committee said it had ruled. You know, if you match the language, it's, you know, it's provably wrong. You know, you just need to look at the words and compare the two documents. How should reporters handle that? You're meant to provide balance. Business NZ, this, they're an important voice on this legislation. They're actually one that you should be able to include in good faith. I mean, I suppose, you know, as a matter of rule, I don't think reporters should report anything from the press statement without fact-checking it. You know, that said, I do think we're entitled to take on trust to a degree what an established member of the, of kind of civil society is saying. So, of course, they oppose this. You expect them to be emotional, emotive, um, perhaps a bit inflammatory, but you still expect the facts that sit underneath that perspective that they have on it to be truthful. You know, I have great respect for the people who run that organisation. I've dealt with them for decades, literally, in their multiple different forms over the years. I think they've made a mistake here in the way they've approached this. The US had this kind of debate, right, with Donald mm. Trump, where, you know, you had this really important source that mm. would say things that aren't true, and it essentially hacked the media over there because mm. they had to report what he said, but they couldn't trust that what he was saying was true. I don't know what the answer to this is. We have to report factually. And in this particular case, like, that wasn't hard. Because the documents were all there. I mean, when I... I, I didn't, it's it's, I it's, it's that old saying, right? I guess the, the old saying is, you know, your job isn't to... When someone tells you it's raining and someone tells you it's fine and your job isn't, you know, to totally. report both sides, it's to look out the window. Like, how I treat press statements is, you know, they have their uses. They can be helpful as because they will express the views of a party to an issue in the words that that party has put those words themselves even within the context of sort of a very inflammatory view of an issue because it helps to create a sort of a marker of what that group thinks of an issue. 
beyond that, you know, there's just sort of acres of documents. There's acres of sort of factual material. We have to sort of fight our way back to the source documents and report from that. I couldn't do that 30 years ago when I was reporting on the Employment Contracts Act. So it's actually paradoxically easier to get to the factual source documents than it has ever been. And I suppose that's my response to this kind of use of misinformation is to just kind of try and go back to the originating documents and yeah, do the job. You know, we had the record, the draft record of the committee when it had sat on, I think it was June the 8th. I could see what everybody had said, including Business New Zealand, including the CTU, including other countries' union movements, including the global employers. And then when the conclusion came out, I could see what had been delivered. So this was clearly a case of literally looking out the window and seeing that it was raining. And it really, at that point, didn't matter what anybody thought about it, because the only thing that mattered, in my view, to the story was what had actually happened. In some cases, that's going to be harder. And then what's your approach? You mean when it might not be raining and just misty? (laughs) (laughs) But I still think, I mean, I've just done a piece on the welfare reform for the listener that hasn't come out yet, and obviously that's a highly fraught area, but almost always sitting underneath it all, you dig down a couple of layers and there's just an enormous body of factual, considered research material for us to draw on. But the you know, the time available to do that is also probably unprecedentedly short. And also there's this drive towards interpretative takes on facts, as we've seen in this particular case, I think it's a daily battle for us. That was journalist Rebecca McPhee, who's reported on the progress of the fair pay agreements currently before a select committee at Parliament and the opposition to them. And she's written about that in the New Zealand Herald, Newsroom and The Listener magazine. There she was talking to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media in Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night on Nights with Brian Crump, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.